ButcherBox makes it easy and convenient to get the highest quality grass-fed, grass-finished beef, organic free-range chicken, heritage breed pork, and wild-caught seafood without any antibiotics or added hormones delivered straight to your door. For me, I love their ribeye steak with a smoke and reverse sear, their tender belly bacon, which is some of the best uncured bacon on planet Earth. ButcherBox partners with people, small farmers included, that treat their animals in the best possible way and never give any added antibiotics or hormones. When you join, you choose your box and delivery frequency. You can cancel at any time without any penalty, and ButcherBox delivers amazing and fresh meat right to your door in a 100% recyclable box. For a limited time only, get free chicken nuggets for a year and 10% off your first box when you sign up today and use the code WP. That's a 22-ounce bag of gluten-free organic chicken nuggets in every order for a year when you sign up at butcherbox.com forward slash WP and use the code WP. Welcome to Western Contours Podcast, sharing experiences, providing insight, and looking for solutions to become better hunters. We talk gear, on and off season preparation, tips and tactics, conservation, and finding inspiration in the outdoors as sportsmen and women. Thank you for joining us as we share our love for all things Western hunting. Hey guys, welcome to Tap Tuesday, brought to you by Titanium Archery Products. Dedicated archers deserve truly elite products that provide all of the performance attributes that they demand, and that's exactly what Tap delivers. This week, I sit down with Derek Fergus of Rugged Maps. Enjoy the episode. So we're on with Derek Fergus of Rugged Maps. Derek, good evening, man. I appreciate you sitting down with me. Sure, no problem, bud. So why don't we uh, jump into it, man? Give us a little bit of intro. Um, tell us about yourself. Well, like most of us, I've been, you know, kind of born and raised in the uh, Northwest and raised on hunting and fishing. And, you know, I always uh, talk to my dad about, you know, wanting to make a living in the industry. And he kind of said, you can't make a living doing that. And that's kind of all I needed. So. In short order, I started in the, in the, actually in the fly fishing industry and I lived in my truck for three years. I learned everything there was to know about fly fishing, fly casting. You know, uh, I casted competitively along the West coast in fly casting competitions. Um, I, designed flies. I've went to overseas to Vietnam and got fly factories going. Uh, you can still purchase some of my flies today in some of your fly shops around the area. So I just really kind of engulfed myself into, you know, the fly fishing industry as kind of a consultant and a sales rep and a, you know, kind of a, you know, basically more of a consultant than anything. Man, three years living in a truck. I lived in my truck for three years. Yeah. To, uh, I mean, I was single and I just wanted to fish. So I tied <laughs> <Hell> fly. <yeah. laughs> 
I, I literally tied flies to make my truck payment because that was pretty much my only payment that I had to come up with every month. And so I would had my truck set up with the canopy and I had a whole fly time bench in the bed of my truck. And I just tied flies for the local shops in central Oregon. And once or twice a week, I'd go deliver the flies and they'd pay me and I'd go back at it and give the, you know, they'd pay me a little extra for fishing updates and stuff like that. And, you know, people came out and interviewed me and, and it, it was just kind of a, yeah, the crazy guy that's up on the lakes and I'd just bounce around and fish and we'd set up a wall tent, but our wall tent was set up for months, not just, you know, not for a season or a month or a week of hunting. We set it up for months and, uh, we'd come and go and, you know, then I just, like I said, I, I'd let people fish with me. They'd pay me to just fish with me. I never really guided anybody. So they wanted to pay me. It was, a, I think I charged a hundred dollars a day to fish with me. <laughs> That's not a bad and, gig, man. No, it was, it was crazy. And you know, when you, you know, it's, uh, I did a presentation here a couple months ago and, uh, you know, guys are like, man, I've never heard anybody talk like that when it comes to fishing lakes and what you know and your casting and so on and so forth. And I just kind of, I kind of laugh because I'm like, you know, if you do nothing but fish ever, almost every day for three years, you kind of better be good. Because if you suck, you need, if you suck, you need to do something else. Especially charging people a hundred bucks just to fish with you. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it's called a performance, and you better perform. And uh, if that guy gets in your boat and he outcasts you, you're not, it's the days aren't not going to go very well. So, and then we would do I do some casting lessons here and there, and you know it was kind of kind of self taught, picked up a little bit from different people, but you know really was self taught. And I wanted I just you know I figured if I was going to make a living at it, I had to be the best or, or really damn close to the best if I was going to make any splash at all or have any credibility at all. And so something to be said about chasing something that you're passionate about, man. I mean, you know, the extent of living out of your truck for three years in a wall tent and things like that. I mean, that there has to be a level of fulfillment um, in that, right. In this day and age, that sounds crazy to folks to live out of a truck to chase fly, uh, fly fishing. Um, but the level of fulfillment must have been second to none. Yeah, it was, you know, there were just many times you just, I would be sitting there all by myself, you know, on a lake and there's nobody there and it's just me. And, you know, I catch a, catch a fish that on a fly that I designed and I tied and, you know, and it's just, you kind of just sit there and look and pause and go, wow, this is pretty spectacular, you know? So it's, there definitely is a fulfillment that's, a, there's, I don't know, it's just kind of a it's, a, it's a weird thing. It's kind of getting in the magic circle when you're elk hunting where there's elk bugging all around you and the wind doesn't seem to matter. And they're just carrying on and being elk and you're just there, you know? And there's, you know, there's definitely that kind of feeling in fly fishing as well. It's, you know, it's just, you can't explain it. 
but you just expect to catch a fish on every single cast, you know, and there's definitely, you know, they call it in the groove, you know, it's like my son the other day was playing a baseball game at Oregon state and he gets up there and he just hits it a freaking mile over the fence against a pitcher from UCLA. And I'm like, wow, that thing was, that was hit a mile. And then he, he, you could just tell in his body language, the way he was walking around, the way he was, you know, interacting with people. I looked at my wife and I went, he's definitely in it. He's seeing the ball. Well, he's different. Well, damn, he gets up there again and freaking hits it over the fence again. You know, and I, and I, she goes, man, you called it. And I, I just said, you can just tell. And you can also tell when it's not there, <laughs> you know, when things go bad, yeah, you know, and athletes have those days. We all it, do. Yeah, no matter what you do, the wind's at your back, you know, it's just the way it is, you know, and you just got to bury that day and, you know, or you break a rod or you break off, you know, the fish of a lifetime and, and you just keep moving forward. You know, it's, there's really nothing you can say about it, you know, and the guys that do it and do it professionally, they know exactly what that feels like. You know, you just, you know, chalk it up as experience and, and, and move forward. That's it, man. Short memory. Yeah, it really is. And, and learning from it. I remember one time when I was uh, fishing with some guys and all of a sudden I, I, I just felt something different in my line when I would strip my line in, like I would, you know, stripping a leech pattern. When I stripped my line in, it just felt like somebody was at the other end of my rod every now and then. And like they pushed the line towards me. And it just seemed, it just seemed odd. Like, like what just happened, you know? And so I started thinking about it for a while and I just thought that's weird. It happened to me about once a day, it would happen. And finally, one day I felt it and I just lifted the rod instinctively. And at the end of it was a 33 inch rainbow. And I learned that those big fish, they don't, with the way they feed, they feed through it. They go through it. They don't turn on it. They just feed through it, you know? And so anyway, it's just little things like that, that when you do it every day, you just, things just are different you, or you hear different sounds or I remember elk hunting one year and we were out there and it was August, first part of August, it was a hundred degrees and these elk just started, you know, bugling a little bit here and there and bugling a little bit here and there. And I was like, that is weird. I've never heard them do that in August, but you know, come to think of it, I'm not really out there during that time of year, usually, you know, and we got into the elk and they just split up and we just, we literally walked over this little ridge and there was, I don't know, 150 head of elk there and they just split and it was just nothing but dust. And for some, for some reason, these four little calves get left and they don't know where to go because the herd go, goes a multitude of different directions and they start whining and screaming and I've never heard it. I've never heard it since. But in that whining and screaming, three different small herds of elk, both branch bulls and cows separately came in running to basically try to save these calves. And I, I, I was talking to, uh, talking to Michael Batiste about it from Elk 
calling the Academy and I, and I know I have it on video and I, I've been trying to find it and I just, but it was one of those things that I'm like, okay, how can I make that sound? Cause I've never heard it before. I've never heard it since, but one thing's for sure. That sound says, come help me. I'm in trouble. You know, and I've talked to all the elk calling guys and, you know, and nobody can mimic it that I've seen. So I, I, I don't even know how to do it. So I'm trying to get that, trying to get that video because it's so high pitched and it's so desperate that they just come running. So anyway, that's a little bit, you know, a little history. So I made a living fly fishing and I, I hunted for fun. That was, that's that was my release was hunting. And, you know, me being me, I just wanted to, there, there, I just was never really satisfied with stuff. You know, it just, the gear was not very good. I mean, when I, when I got started bow hunting 20, gosh, 26, 27 years ago, man, there, there wasn't a whole lot, you know, there was no riser. <laughs> the stuff that was out there was unbelievably bad. Now I look back and I'm like, wow. That was and so you, for the day. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, I mean, you brought your bow stuff with you to work on your bow because something was going to fail, you know? And so it was, it was just completely different, you know? And, you know, I remember the first muzzy drop away rest that came out and, you know, that was a mistake. I bought that stupid thing and, you know, and they, you can tell nobody used it or hunted it or tested it. I mean, because some of the flaws were so obvious, you know, and so it's like trophy taker, you know, their drop away rest they came out with. Well, when they first came out with it, it was just a thin, you know, skinny little fork. And then they had to change to what they called the shaky hunter. That was just a bigger, wider fork, which made more sense if you were actually using it to hunt. The shaky you know? hunter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And it was, it was funny. You were almost embarrassed to buy the rest that was called the shaky hunter. <laughs> We've all been there though. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so anyway, so, and then, you know, getting into, you know, I just had all kinds of stuff to, that I wanted to make and I wanted to try out. And, you know, I, I, you know, we, you know, we've developed a backpack that I'm still using today that eventually we'll introduce and there's nothing, there's nothing like it. So, and, uh, all the packs I've seen out there, they're great packs. I'm not saying anything negative about it, but you know, nobody's really resolved the issue of getting the weight off your ass. So it's, it's there. So uh, you can do all these little things all you want and different ventilations and different straps and different, you know, carbon fiber frames and aluminum frames and you name it. But the issue is it still sits on your ass. And I, I'm honestly surprised that somebody hasn't done something like what we made prototypes of. I'm surprised, you know, but you know, that'll be something. Yeah. That'll be something that we will introduce. Um, you know, who knows when, but you know, keep a lookout. And then, you know, obviously the maps were a big thing. I mean, back in the day in Oregon, you couldn't, you know, to get a map, you had to drive to the ranger district, wherever the ranger district was. So if that was five hours away, you had to drive five hours to get a map 
they wouldn't sell you a map over the phone. You couldn't send them money and say, hey, can you send me maps? You couldn't do it. It was against their policy. You had to be there to buy it. And that was just that was just the fire district roadmap. So, but it was the it was the most it was the most beneficial for a hunter because it showed all the fire roads. Well, all your other Forest Service roads and BLM stuff, they didn't show the fire roads. So then we'd have to go get a map from the BLM and another one from the Forest Service. And then we would try to cross-reference three maps to try to figure out, okay, where we're going to go and do all of our, you know, preseason scouting on a map, which is just e-scouting now, you know, and so it would take three maps to duplicate it. And so one day I finally went and talked uh, to actually my brother who had a little experience in GIS. And I said, Hey, you know, can you, uh, can you build a map that has private lands who, you know, private ownership, BLM, national forest, forest service, and can you, and state lands, and can you overlay the fire roads? He's like, well, I don't know, maybe I'll see what I can do. So he messed around with it, messed around with it. And all of a sudden he, there was. So I got the file from him. I looked at it. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's amazing. I go down to your laser quick or Kinko's. I print it off. It cost me $75 to print it alone. So for one map, it cost me 75 bucks. And then I had it laminated. So I was well over about a hundred, just over a hundred dollars for the map. So, but it was totally worth it. Cause I mean, I, you know, I had to, A, just driving to go get the new map for the next year would have cost me. Or if I remember to do it, I'd buy a lot of them because I knew I would wear them out. Um, it took three maps. So I'm already, you know, you're already $40 into it, you know, in, into the information. And then it's going to wear out. You're going to get one year out of it. So I just, I made one. Then all of a sudden my buddies are like, dude, I want one. I want one. I want one. So I'm not making any money. I'm just like, oh, here you go. Okay, here's one for you. Here's one for you. You know, you know. So I just give them out very selectively to different people. Well, that just rung in my head. I'm like, okay, I can't, I can't. You know, all of a sudden you have all the units and and just the logistics of creating, you know, maps for just the game management units in Oregon was like, okay, that's going to be a bit much to try to do. You know, and so. And the software and everything that it would take to to put the maps together, we didn't we didn't have. So years went on, and my, again, my my maps they'd last about three to four years, you know. But everybody loved it, and it was about that time. I was watching a World War II documentary, and some guy pulls out a silk map that he had inside of his jacket you know, that they used in World War II. And it was pretty generic. It was pretty, you know, pretty basic. And, uh, but in, in a pinch, you know, they would know where the main roads were and so on and so forth. And so I just sat there and I thought, you know, with these printers these days, I wonder if they could do it and pull it off, you know, printing it on fabric. So we met with a, oh my gosh, met with so many different people. Some people said they could do it. The other, you know, and again, it was just this whole different settings, what kind of printer, what kind of material, 
you know, it was just, it was just unbelievably difficult to try. It took us probably well over a year just to find the material that we thought would work. And it took the guy another three, four, five months to figure out the settings on the printer so that it would print the way that you wanted it. So, I mean, it was quite the undertaking just to get one map on fabric. And then we went off to the, the trade show, the Portland show, you know, 10 years ago. And I thought, well, we'll just sell them for a hundred bucks. We'll see if anybody buys it. And so sure enough, people, <laughs> people would spend a hundred dollars for it because they knew what it was. They knew how difficult it was and how much the information. And, uh, so anyway, so I was like, oh, damn, we sold 30 maps. That's kind of crazy for a hundred dollars, you know? So, but it just, you know, and then all of a sudden we got gear of the year award with men's journal and backpacker magazine and, you know, just a lot of awards we got for the map. And so it kind of started to take off. And at that point we were, we got, we negotiated with the guy that was printing them and so we were selling them for about $60 and we sold quite a few. I mean, I, but, but I didn't, I didn't realize who I was selling them really to until, you know, seven years later, I decide, okay, you know, I just need to do this and, and see if it, see if there's, if it's got some legs. And then I realized most everybody I was selling to was somebody that was fairly important on social media had a TV show, was a guide or outfitter. I mean, they were all people that I'm like, oh, okay. I, oh, I've heard of him now. I know him now. Oh, I've sold maps to him. So it was like really quick. I was like, wow, this is kind of amazing. Well, right about that time, you know, Onyx is doing their deal and all the power to them, you know? And so they uh, started gobbling these guys up and sponsoring them and stuff. And I didn't really think anything about it, you know? whatever they do something different than I do. I use, you know, like I said before, I've, I use Onyx as well. I use base map. I use whatever that GAIA one is. There's another one, Avenza. I mean, I use all kinds of apps because you never know when you're going to come across something that has information that you didn't know was there, you know? So I use everything. I just, you know, I didn't really realize just how much more information we had on our maps than a lot of other people until I, re until I had people commenting on it. And I'm like, Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. We have the fire roads. And I just, I didn't think anything about it other than I knew, I knew that we had archived roads and we had roads that were archived, you know, from 10 years ago because we also sold maps to the forest service. And so they were the ones that kind of gave us a heads up on the roads, you know, that they were going to ramp up decommissioning roads and we may want to have that information because it's going to be gone. Once they decommission it, they're going to, it's going to be gone. So, so they I remove can't remember that, that from, from year to year as they decommission. Yeah. And the only way they put it back on the map is if there's a fire in the area and then they recommission it. And I trust me, I I got into a not a debate, but talked with somebody that was actively involved in that, and they decommission it so that when there is a fire, they can recommission it, 
only to, when the fire is gone, decommission it again. He, try, he started to explain to me how if they didn't use the money that they were allotted each year, they wouldn't get it. Right, wouldn't get it back the next year. Correct. So it behooved them to do something to drive the cost to, to what they are every year. Well, it just so happens that the one major thing that they can always count on is decommissioning roads. That's a big chunk of money for them to decommission a road. And so once it's gone, they have, you know, I guess, and I, again, I'm, I'm speaking through this. This is what I was told. So I have it somewhat firsthand, but not a hundred percent, but it makes sense to me, you know, based on the information I see out there. So he, he said, basically you, you have information that nobody else has anymore. You, you just don't have that. We don't have it. It's gone. So unless they recommission it, and they redo the map, it's going to be gone. So that's kind of why when you upload, you know, I always, I've always known that you never want to update your GPS because of that very reason. That's why the chips were so nice and handy because that information didn't change. You knew what you were going to get. Nowadays, when they update their, their GPS or their phones or their apps, that information can completely change. So you're really almost at, not ground zero, but you have, you, know, you have your boots on the ground and you've got a few things here and there. But the idea that just the mere idea of just using your phone or GPS for navigation is catastrophically stupid. And I mean that. You you are an absolute village idiot if that's what you're doing. Well, and you so you are asking for trouble. That that is a and I, and I'm broad stroking and making a hell of an assumption, but I would have to say that is the majority of folks now um, are pretty reliant on, you know, a mobile app or a handheld unit of some sort, um, kind of paper maps or it, it really is land nav is a lost art, but there's not a lot of guys that are carrying paper maps with them, man, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, I can tell you who carries maps. It's pretty much everybody you see on TV and almost all military guys will have a physical map with them. They'll all have it. Absolute so, necessity, in my opinion. Uh, well, yeah. And, and the other part that people don't realize that I asked a gentleman about, um, I asked him, I go, why don't people just use satellite phones now? It seems like the technology's there to just have a satellite phone. Why are we even, you know, why are we even screwing around with this? And he had a very interesting take on it. And he goes, well, the reason why is most of the satellites are on the Southern Hemisphere. And so your service is going to be really sketchy if you're on the north side of anything. And I sat there and I, I thought for a minute and I'm like, I don't know if you remember the Garmin. I have an old Garmin and stuff and it would say accuracy up to 600 feet. So, it, so that basically, and it's connected to four satellites. 
Well, when you get out in the clearing or get on the southern side, all of a sudden you're connected to 15 satellites and your accuracy is four feet. Because it's it's triangulating, you know, all of the different satellites to get, get it more accurate. Well, I'm sitting there going, well, damn, that's, it's, (laughs) the satellites have not changed. Your GPS has not changed. None of that stuff has changed. And so it's no wonder when you get on the north side of something, you don't have satellite service. You don't get great service. You don't get, if you're in a heavy canopy, you you don't have great service. And in in a New York minute, it only takes one draw to go around. And then you thought you were heading south and you're actually heading west or north. And in an absolute heartbeat, you're, you're, you're done. Cause you're more, your, your, uh, natural genetic compass is off. And I've only been lost once in my life. And it, there is nothing more terrifying than not knowing where the hell you're at. Right. Walking in circles and scratching yep. your head. Yep. And so that's why I'm like, you know, if you, if you, if you do have a map and you have just the simplest little cheap 25 cent compass that will just point North, you'll never be lost ever. You will always be able to just go, okay, I'm just going to keep going whatever direction you choose. And then you'll always be, even you'll always be, yeah, and you're going to hit something. You're going to hit a road. You're going to hit something. You're, it, you know, or it's going to get you to a spot where you're going to, you'll be able to figure out. Okay, all right, I know, you know, I I know my truck is west, and I started hunting east, you know. But even then, it's it's funny, you know. People are they're a little bit. There's not a lot of bright people out there. So, but um, but yeah, it's and it, it's something that. I had a guy a couple weeks ago call me up and he was just not upset at me, but just upset at people in general for not taking the responsibility to go out and hunt and not taking the responsibility to know how to get yourself out. And he was, he was just, just, just a huge pet peeve of his. He was just totally bent out of shape. And he says, I wouldn't even sell anybody a map unless they, unless they buy a compass too. And I thought, well, that's probably not a bad idea. You know, maybe I'll just sell some compasses too. You know, so anyway, so that's kind of a little bit of the, you know, just a little bit of background on, you know, how I got into the mapping side of things. So shoot, we might as well just keep on going with the mapping man and, and, and talk about it some more. Um, and, and in my opinion, again, you know, not a lot of folks, are, are carrying you know paper maps uh, and i keep saying paper maps but yours isn't really a paper map right it's it's a physical map a, a physical map so we'll, we'll use that term right um but there's not a lot of folks that are carrying them um i don't even know if there's many people that even understand how to do anything but use the mobile device be a gps or you know or uh, whatever app you're using on your phone um issues that i have with them are Again, accuracy. Um, I've I've waypointed a pair of boots, man. It took me uh, two hours to find those boots after I took them off for a stock. Um, getting lost, yeah. you have you know you, you your batteries go out. Um, you don't have that signal. 
Um, there's just so many. And I didn't start with the electronics, right? I started with paper maps. I would go to what was Sport Chalet at the time. I'd pull out a drawer and I'd look for the area that I was planning to hunt. And uh, I, I would grab that quadrangle, man. Um, and that's really how you made your way through the area. You know, you got there, you landmarked yourself, carried a pencil and, you know, you're marking that map as you're going. For me, I'd make little, no jot little notes on the map as I moved along, if I saw a sign and whatnot. And, you know, always kept, uh, always kept that bearing based on that map. And now it's so easy, man, just to swipe up and open an app. Um, but they'll leave you spinning, man. It, it's, it's a lost art. It is really, really a lost art. Well, it, you know, I mean, a map will teach you the terrain better than anything other than being, there, you know, and you're going to, like I've always said, the map is your introduction. It's the book. It's the table of contents of a book. You know, when you get down into some of the nitty gritty, you know, you're going to pull out your GPS or your phone and you're going to try to find something you've marked. Well, like you said, it doesn't take long before you realize that okay, this is not, uh, not terribly accurate, you know? And I know that because we use a lot of the same, we all basically use the same software to create maps. So there's not really an app company out there that doesn't have the software that I have, you know? So once you have that software and you're looking at it, you realize just how inaccurate it really is. And so I hear guys all the time talk about, well, you know, I use my Onyx or base map or whatever they're using so that I know where the private land is. And I always tell guys, unless you know, and there's a fence that identifies and you can clearly see the difference in terrain or a fence or a Creek or something that, is a physical barrier that shows that there's something, somebody owns something. Don't trust that thing as far as you can throw it because it's not accurate. And people are just, I mean, you hear it all the time. I mean, they're, they're falling their GPS right into the freaking drink, you know, they drive their car and says, turn left and they go right off a cliff. You know, it's, it's pretty unbelievable. The stuff that goes on and, you know, I mean, all you got to do is just look at your phone app and look at the lines that are on the map. Just follow a road and see how exact that line follows the road. And then you will know, oh, my God, okay, well, that's not the road because I'm looking at the road. You can see it on the satellite image, but it's not even close to where that road's at. You know, or there's a trail. You know, I mean, a lot of guys, preseason scouting, I mean, I noticed one the other day I was, I was uh, scouting for a friend of mine and, uh, it was a place down in New Mexico and being a hunter, I knew that they wanted to have, you know, find the tanks or the water catchments and try to identify those because that holds, that's where a lot of animals will hold up because there's water there. Well, as a hunter, if you do a little bit of research, you realize that, you know, elk traditionally, well, traditionally, they, they require, you know, 10, 12 gallons of water just to digest their food. If they don't have the water, they can't digest their food. So they're not like a camel. They have to drink to digest food. So water is 
you know, a huge important part. Well, my map had a tank on it. So I looked at it. I'm like, oh, okay, here's a tank. It's just inside this wilderness area, you know, coveted tag, you know, tough to get. And I looked at my apps, all four of my apps that I have on my phone. Not one single app had that tank. Not one. And so I'm like, I'm just kind of curious. So my curiosity, I get, see, this is kind of where I get geeky on being a map guy. I'm curious to see if anybody else has it. So I pull on, I pull up Google Earth. And I'm looking, I'm looking to see if I can find it, if I can actually see it. And sure enough, Google Earth hasn't marked. Now I have, they have, they don't mark any of their tanks. They don't that I've seen except for that one. Literally, I cannot say that I've ever recognized a tank in Arizona or New Mexico that Google Earth has identified. I mean, they're some of them are big cattle tanks, and they will identify that. But this one was very specific. And sure enough, I zoom in on Google Earth, and you can just see the trails going in and out of that because it was the only tank within miles. So, long story short, smokes a big old gagger bull in that, you know, within, you know, a quarter mile of that tank. So how does that, how does that kind of information, how do you gather that information, I guess? How is that in one system and, and not in the other? It's, it's a multitude of, a multitude of different places to look. It's like playing hide and go seek and there's only three spots to hide, you know, and then all of a sudden you step into a different game and you go, wow, there's actually a lot of places to hide here. And so it's a lot of it, it is experience in knowing where to look for the information, knowing who to ask for the information, you know, knowing the title of the person that may know the, may know it. And then they're really not required to help you out a ton anyway. Even though it's a government agency and it's public information, they're not too hip on just going out of their way to help out Joe Public, you know, or even, you know, a company trying to get information that, you know, legally we're entitled to. So it's, you know, like the roads. I mean, I got contacted by an app company here last week. You know, they want to, they looked at our roads and they said, you know, they recognize that nobody has the road systems that we have. And they want to purchase our road systems. So now I got to decide, do I want to give them that information that took us how long to gather and how much is that really worth? You know, so, but there's a, there's definitely a, there's an art to it, but if don't, if there's one thing that people take is if you don't have multiple sources, you're really selling yourself short. You know, I mean, nowadays half these apps are free or they cost 20 bucks a month. And my gosh, dude, my, I mean, my maps are the most expensive on all of them. It just so happens that you'll own it forever. And, you know, we use, you know, in the field, we use my map as a tarp. You know, we use, if it's wet outside, we sit on it. If we are, you know, you know, quartering up or processing an animal, we'll throw the meat right on the map and then just throw it in the creek and wash it off. So we, it's, it's a multi-use thing, you know, for, and then, you know, and then I've, I've still have my phone and my compass 
you know, for just basically getting back to my truck. You know, I mean, that's, I always laugh because all these guys get on their phones and they just take off. And, you know, if you know anything about it, it's those batteries don't last, especially when you're navigating and it's tracking you. And if you got any cold temperature at all, it zaps that freaking battery in a heartbeat. And so that's the one downside to all of it. And last I checked, my maps don't require batteries and you can beat the snot out of them and drop them in water. And that compass and that map is still going to work if nothing else happens. I mean, I look at it like, why carry a spare tire? You know, there's no point in it. Don't carry a spare tire. I mean, what are the odds you're going to get a flat tire? Well, they're not. Yeah, not really, some people have never even changed a flat tire because they just call somebody. But it's at least there if you need it. So, but anyway, I don't know if you have. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, let's talk some map basics, right? There's, and to me, it's okay. important, like I said earlier, um, to get that information out there. There's there's a lot of guys that are interested in it, um, carrying maps now for whatever reason, you know, they're, they're coming around. Um, there's a lot of people that are being introduced to hunting or, you know, the outdoors, fly fishing, whatever it is. So having a basic understanding of maps, map terminology, symbols, things like that is pretty important. Um, so why don't we get into some of that, man? You, you know, I had somebody reach out to me and say, you know, I hear all these terms, bench, saddle, ridge, draw, shoulders. What the hell is that? Uh, what's a contour? Um, so let's go through some of that stuff, man, from, you know, um, from your, from your seat there, uh, from the expert in the field, um, on those basics and, and, and explain some of those land features, um, you know, talk a little bit contours, um, shaded. And what, what I really like about, about the maps is the shaded relief. Um, because as I'm looking at that, man, I, I really, I really get to see the land features, right? If we're looking at a map that just has contours, um, it leaves a little bit unless you're familiar with them. So in, in my day job, my line of work, I'm dealing with contours on a regular basis. Um, so I understand it and I, you know, but, uh, it, it gets a little confusing. You hear it all the time. Oh, I looked at this area. Um, you know, I was e-scouting or I was on, you know, Onyx or what have you, but I got to the area, man, and it was straight up and down. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't get in or out because it was straight up and down. So let's get some basics going on that stuff, man. Okay, probably the um, probably the basics of there's there's gonna be a, it's gonna be two full uh, in in a couple different ways. A there's reading a map and being able to identify where animals would be, and once you process what attracts animals there, meaning you know, a north facing slope for shelter, a easy transition to a south facing slope, water near the north facing slope, uh, any, if there's any burn areas that are fresh burns or, you know, 10 years old or whatever, that creates a lot of fresh spout or, you know, sprouts and it attracts a lot of animals. But within that area, there's different places that those animals are going to travel. And being able to identify that on a map is 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 a big deal, and uh, that's why I think that people are 
dramatically and grossly, and I never hear anybody talk about it, how many times that these animals will travel a decommissioned road. It's their highway. That's the easiest form of getting to point A to point B for man and beast. So I've never been on a skid road or a decommissioned road or almost any road and not seen elk tracks. They're there. So you just have to basically figure out, okay, where are they coming in and out of? Why are they getting on? But they're, they're using that all the time for travel. So that's priority one. If you can find a decommissioned road, that's, that's elk trail number one. If you can then identify, like I agree with you, the shaded relief makes it real easy because you can just look at it and go, that's a mountain. You don't have to decide, is that the top of the mountain or is that the bottom? And be able to read it and go, okay, then you got to go up the line and check the elevations and go, okay, which direction are the elevations going? Okay, yeah, this must be the top. So it takes that out of the equation really quick. And so it allows you to just look at the map as you would be if you were stand, standing from 10,000 feet and you look at it and go, oh, that's probably a good spot right there. Kind of a nice flat area. There's some water. There's, it's shaded. It's on a northeast facing slope. You can see the slope. You look down at the map. Okay, point the map due north. All right, there's a burn area that's within a quarter mile of that. So I'm just going to circle this area right here you know, and start to identify it. A saddle, a saddle is what I call a transition area. It's a place of migration. It's a place of intercept where you, the animals are probably passing through. And the saddle is generally the lowest point on a ridge. A ridge kind of goes from top to bottom or, you know, basically it goes top to bottom and peters out. But a saddle would be the decompressed or the decom, um, depression within that ridge where it's lower than in front in front of or behind. So it's just kind of a depressed area, which elk will side hill and they'll take that path because it's the path of least resistance. Mm -hmm. So, so the middle, basically the low point in the middle of two high points. Yes. That would be a saddle. And, you know, the ridge is obviously, you know, that's pretty self-explanatory, meaning it's, it's where the, it's the, it's where one side of the mountain goes to the other side of the mountain or ridge or hillside or whatever, the, you know, whatever the case may be. And elk love, they love to feed on the south facing slopes because that's where most of the vegetation is because that's where the sun is the most time, you know, most of the time. So, on the north-facing slopes, you don't get near the vegetation that they like, but you get, you know, really cool areas that they want to bed in, especially in, you know, bow hunting during, you know, September, you know, August, September, even into October with an Indian summer. So you kind of look for those areas like that, you know. So the contour lines are basically the lines that tell you how steep the terrain is. So the closer the lines get together, the steeper the terrain is. So the further that the lines get apart, the flatter it is. So that's just kind of something that's, you know, basic 
you know, that some people may not know. Um, so, so just to I, reference that for the guys that don't know, or the, for the folks that don't know, to reference that a contour is usually set at an even increment, be it 50 feet, be it 100 feet. Um, say it's just flat ground, right? So those contours, if you're going from, you know, 100 feet above sea level to 200 feet above sea level on a physical map, that representation is going to be either 50 or 100 feet. Um, so as they grow closer, that that's what tells you, you know, how steep when they grow, how uh, go further, that gradient changes and it, it flattens yes. out just for that basic contour 101. <laughs> yeah. And, and there really is an art to it. Like you, when you talk about, you know, talking about the lost art, I mean, there's, there's a lost art just in pure navigate, just being able to read a map going, Oh, okay. There's, there's a North facing slope. There's this, there's a bench, there's a little bench here. Let me, you know, and just being able to identify that even for somebody like me, who's done it, you know, I've done it my whole life, but you know, it's the reason I went to a shaded relief because I wanted to take as much information out of the map as possible so that you could look at it and you can look at it and know what you know. You don't have to think about what you're looking at. You just know that's, that's a mountain and this is the north side of the mountain and this is what I want to look for here. Just by a quick glance, you can see it. You don't have to read anything. You don't have to study it. You can just look at it and as a quick, quick reference, you know, basically go with what you know at that point. So that's, and being able to read all of those little spots like that is key, you know, for me to, to be, to have a quick reference on the phone like that. And then if you really want to understand how steep it is, you can, you can just pull up your phone and pull out, you know, put the contour lines on it and go from there and see what, see what you're getting yourself into. Well, and a lot of times with the shaded relief, um, you know, you have the addition of the contours, um, and you can see, yes. you know, you can almost tell what a sheer face looks like, right? Because it's going to be shaded, you know, a brown or a yeah. black, or, you know, it's not going to be green and nice and gradual. Those contours just kind of flowing down. They're going to be stacked yeah. upon each other to where in some instances, they're not even recognizable, um, as, as separate lines. It's so, it's so steep. Yep. Straight top down. Yeah, no, I know, you know, and, and, and the other great part, I was, you know, I was putting together a trip for a guy and, you know, and it just, it just, I, I sat there and I, we were going over an area here in Oregon and he wants to go into this wilderness area. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to find the highest point that I can drive to. And he's like, well, we can just park here and go here. I'm like, yeah, well, that's a 3000 foot incline in about three miles um i'm you know i'm if i'm not going to be in the best of shape starting out this season it's just i don't have the time i just don't have it and so i'm like all right i'm gonna find this and all of a sudden i'm like oh hey here's a here's a decommissioned road i can walk this road here and literally get to the same spot travel an extra mile further but my elevation gain is 500 feet and so all of a sudden you look at it and, and you start hunting smarter. Right now, I see it on TV all the time. I see these guys doing these shows all the time. And they're just bombing 
into places with no real game plan, no real, hey, this is what we're looking for. This is got it. This is ideal. You know, I, I'm, and, and again, unless I'm not seeing all the behind the scenes, but it certainly doesn't appear like they really have any idea where they're going. Well, I think, I think my opinion of that would be that it is not interesting enough. Right. I mean, it's, you know, we're watching, Maybe. you know what I mean? It's, it's about going after that animal, um, dramatizing some of it, I guess, but, and, and nothing against those shows. I watch them and love them. Um, but I don't think that it's interesting enough. It doesn't, it doesn't grab enough people. So it's not something that's focused on. And I think when we start looking at mapping and nav, you, most people won't think of the importance until after an oh shit moment. Yeah. Which is, again, backing us up 20, 30 minutes is foolish as hell. Um, you know, putting yourself in that situation, in my opinion. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I, I guess I'm a nerd that way because I think it would be kind of cool to have them look at something and go, oh, all right, let's go check this out. Right. Look this at this. The who, what, Here's the reason where. why we're going here. Right. And, you know, because as far as I know, everybody's out there to try to help the help people understand. But, you know, the other part that they don't really talk about, unfortunately, is all the points of reference that they use to get and come to a conclusion on why they're hunting where they're hunting. And it's a big, big, big part of, you know, whether you're successful or not. You know, and a lot of guys go, well, I scouted it and I was out here every weekend and, and I, and I, I, I've pretty much given up all my scouting, if you will, unless I'm, you know, have a real coveted tag or something, I'm really targeting a specific animal because all bets are off. As soon as that first weekend rolls through the season, they're not in the same spots. They're not going to be in the spots they were in all summer and just kicking back and trying to stay cool. You know, they're going to all of a sudden start be a little more edgy, a little more on the run. They're going to, they're going to go to places. You know, I, I heard something the other day that somebody said, yeah, you know, they, they go to, you know, the, as soon as they get their first pressure, they go to where they were, where they were calving, where the cows were calving. That's where they go to feel safe. And I'm like, I've never heard that. I'm, you know, I've been bow hunting for 27 years and I've never heard anybody say that. And I'm like, wow, that's really, I never thought about that, but okay. So then the preseason scouting may be during the calving season when they're actually having, you know, having their offspring, obviously you don't want to disrupt them too much, you know, or, you know, be able to figure out where they get, where are they at during this time of the year? You know, and it doesn't take much to get into some elk and go, you know, you don't need to see them calving and having a baby there to know that that's probably where they're at because it's going to be during a certain window of time. You know, so there's, you know, like I said, there's still a lot of things that I'm, I'm still learning. That's the man, you know, it's never and ending. It, it's, that's what's, that's what's so great about it. You know, it's, you know, that's what's so great about it. And the different things, you know, I've been pretty, fortunate in uh 
you know, I harvested a, you know, a bull every, you know, the first 19 years I bow hunted, you know? So I've been very successful and guys are always like, man, how are you so successful? And I'm like, I just don't give up, man. And well, and, and, and there's a and rhyme I'm, or reason for how I'm going in and where I'm going in. Yeah. And, and where I'm hunting and the confidence to, to keep doing what you're doing and knowing that it works. And, you know, I see some guys where they do it one way and they've always done it that way because that's what's worked for them. Well, I see steelhead fishermen like that a lot. You know, the guys that fish and they caught a fish off that rock using this thing and they caught it five years ago and they just know it works and they're going to continue to do it. And so they never really branch out and they just kind of hit repeat. And I, I think that they, there are, there are one of the best videos that I've seen. I don't, I hesitate even telling anybody because I, I was trying to understand why I, why I only called in branch bulls. I mean, herd bulls or spikes. I, I've never killed a raghorn. I only kill spikes or big bulls. It's the most bizarre thing in the world. So I was talking to a, you know, a very prominent world elk calling champion. And he was like, you know, you're a really good caller. I'm like, why am I only calling in this bull or this bull? I would like to harvest a raghorn every now and then a little bigger animal. Don't get me wrong. I love those spikes. They taste awesome. You know, but I go, it just seems like things would be a little more interesting. And I call, I call in a fair amount of cows and they're like, what you calling cows? I go, yeah, I call in a fair amount of cows. And so then I, I was, so there's a guy named a guy by the name of Chris Rowe. And he's got a little podcast called Row Hunting Resources. And if you really want to get into the calling side of things and having a deeper understanding, he at least makes the attempt of trying to explain it and then puts video to calls to try to figure out. And it's, it started to make sense to me on why I killed certain animals and not others. You know, and most people just get out there and they, and it's a huge, it's kind of a huge controversy, even though it shouldn't be because I'm of the, I'm of the uh, feeling that they're saying something. I mean, they're definitely saying something because I saw those calves scream bloody murder and, and the cavalry came. And so I know they're saying something because whatever those calves said, it created and stirred a response out of those these these other elk. So I know that their communication isn't just, by the way, whatever, what was that? You know, I, I know they're saying something. You know, and I don't, you know, obviously we're never gonna know everything they're saying, but if we did, we'd all kill elk. You know, but I I think that there's there's just some guys that can get it done, you know, and I I watch them and I watch them kill and I'm like, man, you're an awful caller. You're awful. But yet they're successful because they kind of sort of sound like what something would say in that moment. And you don't have to be a great caller to know what to say and when to say it. Or know what's being said prior to throwing or, those calls. Or know, 
being said, you know, and so, you know, again, kind of backing up a little bit, you know, the great thing about a game plan and having maps, and here's the other part, another really, really important part about, you know, having maps is if you're going to be hunting, let's just say for a week to 10 days, you better have a good 20 spots to hunt a good 20 locations in 10 days, you know, because inevitably there's elk that have been, there were there and they're, they've been pushed out of there or someone else is in on them or something happens and you're going to go to plan B that morning. Or there's all of a sudden you get around this ridge, and you get up to this bench and here's a camp. So in real short order, you better have a lot of places to go look at. And to know and identify, I'm looking for a bench. You know, a bench is where they will bed. You know, so you're looking for a bench on a north, northeast facing slope where they can bed, where it's shaded. You know, so that's where they're going to go to sleep. And so that's a good spot to start. The, the, the tricky part is figuring out where are they going and coming from. And to be able to identify the south-facing slopes and identifying different areas that you want to focus on is really critical in eliminating a process of elimination. Like, okay, now you, you did this, now it's on to this, now it's on to this. Okay, that didn't work, it's on to this. Okay, now we got a bull talking. Okay, now we need to focus on this. Okay, what are we going to do in the evening hunt? All right, let's rest him. So we're on to the next one. In three days, let's come back to that bull because now he's, you know, probably forgot about what happened in the encounter and let's get back on him and he's probably going to be in this area. And so you need to have a lot of spots and be able to be really mobile. And one of the best episodes that I saw was, you know, with some of the born and raised guys where, you know, it just all went to hell in a handbasket and they're, they're road hunting, you know, and that's, that's real. You know, and you're driving along and you're just trying to locate bulls from the road. And sure enough, they get a player and they get it and they almost kill the bull within a hundred yards of the road. But and you hear that a lot, I, man. You hear it a lot. Oh yeah. And I, I I I joke I kind of joked with those guys and guys like that a lot. You know, I I've always said, you know. The hard part is killing it as close to the road as possible. That's the hard part. The easy part is going back there where nobody's at and killing a stupid bull. That's the easy part. The hard part is packing that bull out. That's for guys that are young and dumb. I prefer to kill the bull as close to the truck as I can. I got a buddy, man. He says... Within 300 yards of the road, I've killed all of them there. He swears yeah. by it. Well, and here's, here's in this day, in these days of backpacking, backcountry, going light, going deep, spending, you know, spike camps. I mean, everybody's bombing into a place. They're packing a, you know, they're going side by side. Then they get on a freaking motorcycle then they get on their backs you know and it's just it's crazy the things people are doing to get deeper and deeper in the woods 
Eh, some of that about, is experience, though, right? I mean, it, it is. There is something yes, about being in that back country and being by yourself or being two guys. Um, I'm not doing 18 miles. There's no way in hell that I'm doing 18 miles. Um, but there's something about that experience, right? It's it's got to be enjoyable. It, it is an experience, and it's you know I am by all means I'm not saying don't do that what i am saying is that seems to be all i see in here everybody's lifting weights everybody's posting pictures on social media that their biceps and their calves and their reps and their hike and their elevation and the food they're taking and how they feel and you know and that's great it's that's great but i really feel like we're alienating the guy that sits at a desk and doesn't have the time and, and is, is coaching his kids sports. And, you know, I had a, a, a friend of mine that he lost his hunting partner because his hunting partner didn't feel like he was putting in the work before the preseason to be able to keep up with him so that they would be successful. Part ways, buddy. And, sorry. Yeah. And I, I looked at that and I go, I would probably double lung his ass in a heartbeat, <laughs> you know, because I mean, that's, that's ridiculous. I mean, that that's ridiculous. I mean, I'm don't get me wrong. You're talking to a guy that lived in his freaking truck and fished, you know, an ass load a year, a lot, you know, that waded into places and crossed river, rivers and creeks that I shouldn't have went, you know, because I was that intense and I've done the backpacking. But I noticed 10 years ago, the deeper I got into the woods, the more guys I ran into. We better not let that secret out, man. <laughs> let everybody just, pack it in <laughs> you know you want to help these young hunters out i don't think they need to feel like they need to bomb in there you know five to ten miles or they're not going to have any success because five to ten miles is going to be basically probably the more people they would see at any time if they were just looking walking out a, a skid road and walking out a decommissioned road yeah and, oddly uh, enough i would have I, to agree in, in, and in and just going, state. hey, oh, yeah. And it's, you know, and then, I mean, I, so, I mean, just to tell you, I went into the backcountry in Oregon. I was really, I wanted to pack with goats. And I was, you know, found a guy and he had goats and I was just jacked. I mean, we're going deep, baby. We're getting away from everybody with these goats. So I, we're, I don't even know how far we're in there. It's a long ass waste. And what I noticed is that you had the, what I called the one to three, four milers, which are kind of the day hunters. Then once you get to the four to seven, eight milers, which are, you know, they'll set up a camp. And then you get to that eight to 10 miles. And then those, those are those guys that set up a spike camp at the five to six miles. And then once you get beyond them, then you run into all the outfitters. And so it's a never ending, you know, pathway and highway of people going into an area, trying to get away from people when literally I can think of five bulls that I've killed right on the edge of the wilderness area within, within a mile of my truck. And I just went to the trailhead. And rather than going into the wilderness area, I just went to the trailhead and I just followed the edge of the wilderness area 
and I hunted the edge of the wilderness area. Because the other part that people don't realize is the more people and more traffic that are going into that wilderness area, they're going to push animals out. And so the, now all of a sudden the shelter and the safe haven isn't in the wilderness area. It's right on the fringe where there's nobody. So Silence it becomes a trucks. Yeah. The, the fringe, the wilderness area becomes the edge of the wilderness area for the elk. And you know, I mean, I, I can't even tell you, I've never killed a bull deeper than a half a mile in a wilderness area. Never. Never killed a bull. I've killed, you know, like I said, I've killed 19 bulls and never one in that. And I think the deepest was maybe a half a mile. And to tell you how pathetic it was, we, and I've got this on video. We, uh, <clears throat> we were hunting this one area and I noticed on the map, on my map that there was a road and there was a road that went to the edge of the wilderness area and it went across private property. And so I pull into this road and you, again, you have to do your homework to find out that that road's even there. Most maps don't even have it on there anymore, but it was an access. So I went there and all of a sudden I walk, I, we drive back in there about a quarter mile and we pull up to this house and here's two cop cars in the driveway. And I'm like, well, okay, it must be cop must live here. So I knock on the door, nobody's home. So I leave a card there and, you know, I was fly fishing sales rep and I, you know, kind of know a lot of people in the hunting industry. And I just said, Hey, you know, would you be willing to swap some gear, you know, for just, just access, not hunting your property, just access. And he calls me up the next day and he goes, man, you got enough balls to knock on the door of a, the game officer. And he goes, what's your name? I tell him my name. He runs my information <laughs> to see if I have any big game violations. And I'm like, he goes, well, you're good to go. You don't have any big game violations. I'm like, geez, that was kind of weird. You know, it's like I just got felt up by somebody and they didn't even ask. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, okay. And he goes, I only ask one thing. You don't have to bring me anything. Just bring me a bottle of Pendleton whiskey when you come. I'm like, no problem. So at that point, I didn't even drink. So I'm like, okay. And I looked at my buddy. I go, what's Pendleton? I don't even know what that is. He looks at me. He goes, seriously, Derek? And I'm like, I don't know. So anyway, he goes, oh, it's whiskey. I'm like, okay, all right. I got it. So we show up. And so then we get there and we bring him the bottle of Pendleton. We let him know we're coming. He goes, hey, by the way. I really want, I'm, you know, I'm horses and I'm really been training them to, to pack. And if you get an elk down, let me know and I'll come pack it out for you. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I, so, so we're just like, screw it, man. We're going, we're bombing in there. We're going as far as we want to go. All we have to do is walk out. He'll bring in the horses and take it out. Winner. We're, we're golden. So we start hiking in there. We're not even a half a mile up that trail. And I'm like, you know, this kind of looks good. This, you know, and it's, we're in our shorts. So we're just packing in because we're not going to hunt that night. And I'm like, I don't know, guys, this looks pretty good. You know, and it's that time of night. Let's just, let's just go up here, grab your bows. Let's go up here and we'll set up and I'll call, you know, do a couple setups and barrages and we'll see what happens. 
well, it's like our third setup. We're not hunting 40 minutes. Here comes this five-point bull. My buddy smokes it. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And so we literally just turn around, walk back out, knock on his door, and say, we got a bull. <laughs> he looks at us and goes, bullshit. There's no way. I'm like, we got a bull. He goes, all right. Well, it'll be okay in the morning. I'm like, oh, it'll be fine. We'll get it cleaned out and everything, you know, get it gutted out and, you know, everything. And he packed his horses in there and drugged that sucker out. I felt, you know, of all the times that I wanted to go in 10 miles and have someone pack out an animal, that was it. Yeah, and all the horses nope. were there. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, it was a half a mile and it was, it was a half a mile that was all downhill. So it was like, wow, that really kind of sucked. But oh, well, I, whatever. It's, you know, but, uh, but yeah, so I've, I've learned that, you know, those wilderness areas and hunting the fridge, the fringes of the wilderness areas can be very, very, very productive. Yeah. Especially you know, in those and, high pressure areas, man, those OTC units, especially. Yeah. I mean, so you have to start looking for spots, but you know, unfortunately those wilderness areas are just like a magnet for people. They just, Oh my gosh, I'm in the wilderness area. Oh, we packed in the wilderness area. Well, it's just because it's designated wilderness area doesn't mean you have to go in it. You can pack on a, a decommissioned road for 10 miles and get into some really cool country and have an easy walk in and out. And there's so, nothing but, wrong with it, man. There's kind of a <clears throat> there's kind of a stigma, you know, when, when you start talking about stuff like that. But there's there's absolutely nothing wrong with uh, using those easy access points. You know, doesn't mean you're necessarily hunting from them, um, but you're gaining access, you know, air quotes, the easy way. If I can hunt from a decommissioned road, I will every day. Because generally speaking, they're going to, those elk are going to be using those roads. They're going to use them. And you can walk down a road and you will see rubs down that road, all on that road. And it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a guaranteed. There's nowhere you can't find a decommissioned road and not see rubs practically in elk country. So, so that let's that kind of brings us into, in my opinion, into rugged maps, um, and that's part of the value in rugged maps um, is having that history of the fire roads, the decommissioned roads um, for you know years and years back, and, and that hasn't been lost. Um, so why don't you give us a little bit about, uh, about rugged maps, tell us about the offerings, how it works, um, how we acquire the maps. Um, yeah. Why don't we go through all that? Okay. Well, we, we have everything separated out by game management unit. That's the easiest. That's what hunters identify by. Some of the areas are the size of the map and scale depends on the size of the unit. And some units are so big, we have to split them up into multiple maps. Um, generally speaking, the, I always, you know, I always say that my maps are the most valuable in front of my computer and in my pickup truck, because that's really where I use my map the most. And um, pulling up Google Earth and identifying spots on my map that I want to look at. And then once I find out that that road is closed, and you, you know it's closed, you know, just by looking at the satellite image, you can see if there's been, you know, current traffic on it. So from that standpoint, we're going to offer you 
a mapping system that is going to be literally handed down to your children. You know, if you just don't set set the thing on fire, you know, it's going to last you probably your lifetime. The great part about what we do is that, you know, we were the very first to offer and sell uh, fires and the, and the year that the fires burned. So a big advantage for us and buying a rugged map is that we go back almost 20 years on our fires. And there's two reasons for that. One, there's the reason of it attracts a lot of animals. And when you have a fresh, you know, a burn that's, you know, one to five, six years old, maybe even a little older, you know, it, it attracts a lot of animals. The second is once you get a burn that's over 12 to 15 years, what happens is, is those, that those, you know, trees start rotting out and falling. And so you get all of this deadfall. And if you can pull up Google Earth and you can look at an old burn and you can see if it looks like a matchstick box, you probably want to avoid it. Because I know there's places in Oregon where you can walk for four or 500 yards and never touch the ground. And it can be so nasty when it comes to those kinds of places. So it serves a couple of purposes, you know, and a lot of people don't talk about you know, basically avoiding those areas because you can get yourself caught into areas where, and it, it, it can be really sketchy getting out of there, you know, and it only takes one fall and you're, you're falling, you know, a ways or you're, you know, putting something through your leg or whatever the case may be, you're twisting your knee or whatever. So it's really a good thing to kind of have an idea of, yeah, I want to avoid this, you know, and I, I know that from, you know, getting into an area that I knew had elk in it and I was just hell bent like, okay, I know it's got elk in here, you know, and it's going to avoid all the other people and people are going to avoid it, you know, that know they're here. And, you know, and I went in anyway, like an idiot and inevitably all I did was spend my time trying to figure out how to get out of there. You know, there's no way I could hunt. There's no way I could do anything. And the elk basically just ended up taking off, you know, so. Um, on, you know, obviously you have, you know, there's a couple of benefits, you know, like we talked about before, of you know, of using our map as a tarp, you know, in the field, we use it as a tarp. You can use it as a floor mat. I've got a guy that had a goat hunt. He, he literally slept on it. It was his waterproof barrier, you know, and they got caught in a storm and he just threw that thing down and it kept his upper part of his body dry. You know, so it was kind of nice in an emergency way. I mean, you can use it as a tourniquet if you need to. So there's, you know, a lot of different things you can use it for. Um, and a lot of guys use it, you know, they'll be in their RV and they'll just, it'll be their, it'll be their tablecloth and their RV and it'll be their, you know, their war room, if you will, in the RV. And they're going to be like, I want to check out this. and I've already circled this. And so they'll sit around and have dinner and, you know, and sit there and write right on the map and come up with a game plan. And I'm going to come here and you're going to go here and, you know, and then it becomes, you know, like I said, the, you know, kind of like the war room and the place where everybody gathers to go, where's everybody going, you know? And, and so it's used <clears throat> that way a lot. Um, gosh, it's, 
you know, I, I always like to tell people, you know, the road systems are huge, you know, you know, for the ease and the ease of getting it out. But, you know, just in case of emergency or if you do get an animal down, you know that, okay, I can go down a quarter mile or a half a mile and I can just hit that road and walk out. And, you know, you know, God forbid you don't have a flashlight or, you know, again, even your flashlight only has a certain amount of batteries. And there's just all kinds of issues that, you know, that we run into. You know, I'm phone right now with you and I, I have to have my phone plugged in because it won't last. You know, so, I mean, we run into issues like that all the time with technology and electronics. But, yeah, Rugged Maps is, I would say Rugged Maps, it's never, it's never anything anybody wishes they didn't have or buy. I've never had anybody return one. I've had just a few people that said they didn't like it because they were used to a USGS type of map that was just different. Right. Right. And there is a big difference with the USGS. Yeah. A USGS map is going to cover a lot smaller area. And so the USGS maps aren't going to give you the ownership. They're not going to give you a lot of different things. You know, they're not going to give you some of the burns, even though we do incorporate some burns on ours. Um, But it, Sometimes more than more times than not, it's going to take, you know, it's going to take four to six maps to cover a game management unit. You know, and in some instances, it makes take up to 12, you know, just to cover one unit, you know. So, yeah, it's a little bit rough, you know. So, anyway, there's I mean, a. If it ta- it, and I don't know anybody that does it. I don't do it. I mean, I, I have a an area based on terrain features right so if i'm like right now i'm on i'm on rugged right on the website and just for for shits and giggles um i'm up in oregon and i'm looking at an area and i would never try and get into this entire area right i mean i'm gonna pinpoint a localize the area i'm right now i'm looking at uh gmu 49 ukiah right i'm not gonna go from the 54 all the way out to the 21 to the north end and the south end of that whole unit. I'm going to look for those land features that interest me for whatever reason. Um, and maybe it's the, the decommissioned road services or the, or the fire history on there. And I'm going to pinpoint that. Um, so getting into, you know, 10, 11, 12 maps, when you get into some of the bigger units, um, you start looking at, you know, Colorado, what GMU 61, 62, they're huge. Um, I'm yeah. never going to try and pin or not pinpoint an area of interest, whether it's, you know, a mile off of that decommissioned road or it's 10 miles off of that decommissioned road. Cause I want to make that pack in. So I don't know that a guy would need, you know, 12 maps. That's crazy. So you, then you can, well, yeah, we, we sell a lot, you know, like you're, you know, Ukiah is a, a good area in Oregon that, you know, that, you know, we will, we can hunt multiple units out here. So we'll, we'll hunt a Ukiah, we'll hunt Starkey and Hepner and Desolation. And there's like four units there. Well, if we, if I want 20 different spots, we may drive that far. It's not uncommon for us to drive an hour, hour and a half just to get to the next spot. And, you know, we usually, we usually go out and, try to identify the next, you know, the next spot we're going to be and try to have a little bit of a pre-planning ahead of time, 
you know, where we'll wait for an hour after dark and then we'll go to our prospected area and we'll light off a bugle or two or three and see if we can get some responses to know whether or not we're even going to go there. So again, it's, 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 it's making things efficient as you can. I fished with a guy that was a world-class fisherman. He was the editor of fly fisherman magazine. I mean, just the guy was editor of Patagonia. I mean, he just, just a really knowledgeable guy. And we were fishing a lake here in Oregon and he just was watching me and he goes, he goes, okay, Dirk, how, why are you catching more fish than I am? And I said, well, that's easy. I go, I cast further than you'd go on every cast. And he looks at me and he goes, what? I go, yeah, I cast at least 10 feet further than you on every single cast. So I'm going to be more successful than you. It's a numbers game. And so when you're elk hunting, it's the same thing. If you have 20 spots to go to and you go to that one spot one night and you're not getting anything, there's nothing because somebody was just in there and blew them out. Then you go to the next spot and then you go to the next spot and you go to three spots that night and all of a sudden you find them in the third spot and they're bugling in the third spot. So you're there hunting that next morning in the third spot. You're not wasting a morning on a spot that doesn't have any elk in it. And so you now are becoming very efficient with the way that you hunt. That's the big downside to back hunting. You're just locked into an area. And then, oh, guess what? There's also 30 other guys that are there too, or there's five camps. And then what do you do? Let's say you hike into a trailhead and you get to that trailhead and all of a sudden there's 40 rigs there at the trailhead. Well, there was only four there last year and we had a great time. Well, now there's 40. Now what are you going to do? And so the, the preseason scouting with my maps is absolutely essential. I don't even, I, I can't even, I'm amazed anybody even kills anything without it because it's just dumbass luck. Because if you get to that spot where you're, a serious enough hunter and you just want to look at the basic mathematics of being successful. It's called, I'm going to make as many casts as possible. And how do I do that in hunting? I need to be in front of as many elk as possible. And the more elk I can be in front of, the more I'm going to find that one that decides, you know what? I like what you have to say. I'm going to go kick his and all of a sudden, it's game on and you're successful in a matter of minutes, you are successful. But if you hadn't done your homework, then all of a sudden, you don't, you, your trailhead, you're done. That's, that's your hunt. That, that was it. You were planning on packing in. So what do you do? You just pack up your shit and you head down that trail and you just go do it no matter what. Right. That, that's... And so you don't have a plan B because... You have it in your head that you're going to go. And I, I see it on, I see it with some of these guys on YouTube. I see where they kind of, it's, it's, it's plan B time. And so they have to adjust and they have to, you know, change their strategies and they have to, you know, adapt. And some of those guys are really successful because they know how to adapt. 
You know, I still go back to that born and raised episode where they just about killed the bull. And if they hadn't have done that, they wouldn't even have had a chance. And all they did is give themselves one more chance to harvest something where the next guy doesn't get that chance. And all of a sudden, like I, I tell my son, you, you're, your goal is to get two opportunities in a hunting season to harvest a bull elk. That's the goal. If you get two opportunities, legitimate opportunities, and you screw it up, that's on you. You can't be upset. That's on you. But if you put in the time and effort and you pay attention to what's going on and watch the wind and everything it takes, you know, then you get those two opportunities, you're going to be successful. You're going to let an arrow fly eventually. You know, and I, I've, I've hunted with guys, they haven't, that guy that killed that five point bull had been bow hunting for 15 years. It's the first time I ever hunted with him. And he killed the bull within an hour of hunting with me. You know, and it's, it's not, it's not rocket science. It's just knowing and believing what you're doing works and knowing that more than likely there's probably going to be animals in this area. You know, sure enough, there was a spring, there were two springs on that ridge. There were two springs on that ridge. So I knew that we could side hill that ridge right to the base of our camp, hunt that evening for an hour, basically two hours was all we had to hunt. And it was a quick, easy hunt, but that's exactly where they were going to be. Nothing wrong with a quick, easy hunt, man. As much as we like spending time out there, there's nothing, nothing bad about going in and getting that shit done. No, no. And it's, and I would, you know, and the other part for me is I, I'll scout an area out. I've had customers call me up and say, okay, I've never hunted out there. I'm from New York. I'm going to be hunting Colorado 55. And, uh, you know, can you give me some advice? Sure. You know, and I'll be on the phone with them. And within 10 minutes, I'll give them at least seven to eight spots that they need to pay attention to. Yeah. About a mile northeast of Bald Butte. There's a spring. It's north facing slope. There's fresh water. And that's the other part. A lot of people don't realize that is not a lot of information out there where if there's no name on the spring or there's no name, or excuse me, if there's no name on that stream or Creek, that means that it's not something that flows year round. If you are, if you look at that stream and it has a name, that means that in the hundred years or whatever it's been around, it's got water in it. If it doesn't have a name, you can't depend on it for water. So if you're in the backcountry and, you know, inevitably you have to find water, that's an, a real, and that, again, that's something I, I never hear anybody talk about. Yeah, and that's essential. <laughs> that you know? mean packing in gallons or not, man, or being thirsty and getting your ass kicked out there. Yeah, and it really, yeah, it really is important, you know, so... So anyway, that's kind of in a nutshell what Rugged Maps is. We're the, we're the map that everybody wanted 20 years ago, and in 20 years, we're st we'll still be the map. So looking at it, right, so we got the GMU maps. Um, I mean, you got Alaska, Arizona, California, Colorado, Idaho, Montana. 
Nevada, New Mexico, Oregon, Utah, Washington, Wyoming, right? So all those Western contours, haha, got that plug, um, states, man. Um, and let me see, I'm going to go to my home state here of, of California. So like the focus in California, right, is, is some of the premium units. Um, yeah, Caddy Mountains and, oh, you got some, yeah, you got A-Zone North. Yeah, there's going to be most of the most of what's on our website is stuff that we've archived. Um, we have the ability to make any map. So if you don't see it on the website, it doesn't mean that we don't make it or can't make it. It just means we haven't. And so the maps take a little bit longer, especially this time of year. A guy called me and he ordered two maps a week ago. And I'm like, look, it may be a month easy month before you see those maps and he's just like okay and that's the other unique part that i've found with this company people just want the map they don't care they'll wait i mean i've i haven't refunded a single person in the three and a half years i've been running this company we have not refunded anybody because you know if if we miss we miss their deadline and we can't get their map to them and they just go okay well you know my next hunt is here so send me one for that let's get that one going it's like okay all right well you've already paid for it oh, okay yeah that's fine so here i'm gonna let's see i'm going to alaska gmu alaska yeah that's alaska is a nightmare is it <laughs> alaska is a nightmare because alaska's information is not very good and there's such a big area and there's not a lot of information out there. So you can have a river that goes through it and a few creeks and you might be lucky if those creeks are named. It's, it's, it's awful. So we, we generally encourage people to go to like a usgs.gov and pick out their, you know, their quadra, their quad map that they want. Cause we have all the quads, you know, and most of our quads are listed on our website. So with those quads, so you just so you then you take that and you print that out on, on yeah. the, the fabric or paper you're, of your physical yeah, map with the shaded relief. No, it's it, no, it's what you see from USGS. Oh, okay, okay, so it's their it's their quadra angle. Yes, yes, and we we did that because we had so many different people that, you know, that uh, that's what they were used to. That's what they were comfortable with. That's, you know, believe it or not, there's people that you know and i we get a lot of people that will buy a gmu and then they'll buy two or three quad maps within that gmu i mean those are the guys that i'm like okay these guys are serious they've got it dialed in they there's no stone left unturned with those guys right and and then the quad you can you can change the size of that map right so they're probably getting getting your gmu yeah, the quad map. Is, yes the, the quads are still 34 by 44 inches they're just big you're not getting a little, you know, 11 by 18 or 17. You're not getting some little map that, you know, that's on a waterproof kind of sort of paper that, you know, doesn't tear, but does kind of, you know, you're getting a literal tarp for your USGS map that will serve a multitude of purposes for you. And every map comes in a bag, you know, that identifies the map. So I designed it that way because I was tired of folding maps if you didn't fold the map the right way, the identification of what map that was wouldn't be on the outside. 
So you'd have to unfold the whole damn map to figure out which one that was. So I decided to make a bag that prints at the same time the map prints that identifies what's, you know, what map it is that's in the bag. Which is, yeah, I don't know if people realize how useful that is if they're not carrying maps, but that's uh, damn useful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, well, yeah, you, if any, any, any guy that's spent a fair amount of time in the woods and has, you know, you know, 50 to a hundred pounds of maps in a tote somewhere and knows exactly what it is. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> you know, cause you're, you're just funneling through and you're trying to, Oh man, was it this one? Oh, I think it was this size. Oh, I thought it was this color and it had that stain on it. And you know, Oh my gosh, it's, I, it's, it's rough, you know, but you know, like I said, it's just kind of a easy access. Oh, it looks like I got a neighbor here firing up the lawnmower. Say, let me roll up the window here, but so, but yeah, it's just kind of an easy access for people that can kind of you know figure things out and you know just makes things a little bit easier. So, so when you get the map right, you got the standard map and it's uh it's thirty four bucks. So say Colorado GMU one sixty one, um, that gives you that entire unit, and then you also have some customization that you can do it to it, right? A hundred foot contours, 200 foot, 300 foot, and then you have a custom map. So what is the custom map? Is that just narrowing down the size or, or how does that work? Yeah. The custom map is really one that I discourage people from doing, uh, for their first purchase because, you know, it's kind of like looking at trying to look at a room through a keyhole and you get there and you go, well, damn, okay, well, I didn't realize that there was a, you know, there was a, you know, a fire rolled through there. Well, the fire that would, you know, wasn't there when you drew your tag. And now what are you going to do? And so I just think if you've got a tag for a game management unit, get the standard unit. Don't spend any extra money for anything. Just get the standard game management unit. Then go use it. And then at that point, if you go, you know what, I really want something a little more zoomed into this area and focused on this area. One of the biggest misconceptions that people have, and that's, you know, to, to blame Google Earth and all these apps, is that the more you zoom in, it tends to populate different things. So that creek doesn't have a name until you zoom into a certain point. And then it has the name. Or the road number it doesn't have a number until you zoom into a certain elevation and then it'll identify what road it is. I just choose to tell you what the name of the creek is and what the road number is and what the spring is right up front. So you're by zooming in, you aren't getting more information. You're actually getting less. You're actually getting less. Yeah, because you could take this down. I just I'm I'm doing it as we're talking here. I mean, you could take this down to where your X and Y is a pinhead. Yeah. And I see those maps come in and I'm like, that's just, it's, I'm sorry, but it's just dumb. Why? I don't understand. I mean, I'll, don't get me wrong. I'll take the money and we'll make it for you. But, you know, I, I made this map because I got tired of buying maps every year and laminating. And there, I mean, that's why I started this company because I wanted something to last. You know, this isn't your, this isn't an app on the phone. This isn't, 
this is something that will last you your lifetime. So why not make it cover a broad of an area as you can? Just, I mean, and there is a fine, a fine tuned moment of how much is too much because some of these areas, there's one in Utah that takes 10 maps, you know, and it's like, it's the Northwest corner unit one, I'm like not 10, but six maps. I'm like six maps at a one to a hundred thousands. That's crazy. You know, and you know, and most of it is just flat as can be. And you're only going to be looking for antelope and you know, I don't know. You know, there's only one little, you know, a little set of ridges or mountains out there. So, but anyway, yeah. So, I mean, I always encourage people to just get the basics first. You know, when you want to get customization, we're going to be able to do that for you. You know, um, your next map may be a satellite image. Maybe you really like the way that the satellite looks on your phone. The downside to all those phones is that the more layers you add, the more fires you're outlining and shading, the prop, the ownership, whether it's BLM, National Forest, you know, it the darker and darker it gets. It's harder. And so definitely harder it, it, to deal yeah. with. Yeah, it's like walking, you know, walking into your bedroom with sunglasses on and you kind of like, yeah, you, you kind of see a few things a little bit, but you got to really look, you know, and at that point it just becomes difficult. And I don't, I don't really understand why you'd want to do that. So I always tell people when they do want a satellite image, I just said, look, just leave it off there. You know, just, just leave it, the satellite image, leave it alone. We'll put the roads on it and we'll do all the other things on it that you may want to do and we'll print it up for you. And then you can, you can kind of fill in the gap on whether you're on private land or you're on public land. It's not that difficult to figure out. Yeah, especially when you yeah. have the detail. The level of detail on the map yeah. is going to facilitate that big time. Yeah, sometimes you can see the fence or the boundaries, the properties of the road, or, you know, it's not difficult to see it. And then you just cross-reference it with your phone, and then you figure out, okay, well, that's private. All right, now you know. You know, but at least you're going to get a nice big map that has everything on it that you want to hunt and be able to see. It's just not going to tell you who owns what but you do have another source for who owns what. Well, and then and so, it goes back to what you were saying, right? And, and Michael Batiste touches on that all the time on, uh, on ECA there. Um, and, and I'm guilty of it, man, but being able to say, Hey, you know what? We got 10, 10 camps here. We thought we were good. We were here last year and there was three guys, like you said, um, I'm going to book it and I'm going to go night bugle. And it might be 30 miles, um, but it's going to put me in the position, the best position to get to harvesting that animal, at least an opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. You know, unfortunately, people are found out about it now. And so there was a time I we never saw anybody. So <laughs> people were always like, man, how do you, why are you so successful? Well, we're, when you're in elk, the beginning of every day, your your odds of killing an elk go up quite a bit, you know, and your odds of finding that really dumb big one is gets better and better. So, so um, what do you guys? What's the outlook? What uh, I know you had a couple a couple of uh, things going on. You got your your bino harness. 
Um, and what what else does Rugged Maps have in front of it? Well, some people may remember um, I did some game bags, oh gosh, 10 years ago when I started all this. The initial game bags were called mass casualty game bags. And we used to sell them in Sportsman's Warehouse and those locations and stuff. And then it got changed to goat gear and goat game bags. And mine are pretty easy to spot because they're blaze orange. And we will be reintroducing those game bags um, just because the people that have them, they'll never use anything else. And I've got a bag that's called a core cooling bag that nobody's done. And our bag, also all of our game bags have straps on them. So you can hang them around anything. So you don't have to worry about tying anything, tying a knot, doing anything. You just wrap it around a tree anywhere, clip it, and you're done. You're gone. You know, and uh, which is handy when it's when things are heavy. It's handy to just clip it and be done with it. But I've got a core cooling bag that I patented here a while, you know, 10 years ago that um, basically what it does is it's, it's a bone out bag. And what you do is you stack in the bottom third of the bag with meat. And then it comes with a, a band that goes around the bag and you slide that band over the top of the bag. And then you stack in your next third of meat. And then you put in another band and you finish it out. And what it does is it, it separates your meat into three smaller cores so that they cool three times faster. So that's how, why we call it the core cooling bag. So that's something that we'll be reintroducing. And, uh, you know, I was hoping to get it done, you know, by now, but, you know, probably come trade show time, we'll have them for the trade shows. And then we've got a whole series of, you know, binocular accessories that we'll be coming out and introducing. You know, one of them is the ULB binocular accessory that we came out with, oh gosh, 10 years ago. Um, there is another guy that, that uh, we used to make them for who goes to all the shows and sells them. And I don't like people that just kind of take things from me. So I decided I would just reintroduce it and make it a little bit better and offer a better price for people. And it's one, it's the best binocular system out there. I mean, it seems stupid. It's, I always say it's so lame and so dumb, but so effective and so awesome you'll be ashamed that you love it so much. So, I mean, it's, you know, Jason Harrison, the founder of Sitka and Kuyu, you know, he was like, he goes, that's my, that's my favorite. That's my favorite harness. You know, I mean, there's a lot of guys that a lot of serious hunters where that's what they use because it's simple. It's easy. I designed it and developed it initially because I was sick and tired of my straps vibrating in the wind when I'm glassing. And I'm surprised. I'm, I must be the only guy that it bugged because I'm surprised nobody else came up with it. Because I, I just wanted something that I could cinch down as tight as I wanted 
And the other nice thing is my call, my cow call is right underneath my chin. I can pull it up to my mouth, make a cow call, let it go, and I'm ready to go. I, as soon as I get that animal in range, my range finder sits right underneath my armpit. I just reach, grab it, range it, let it go. There's not a more efficient binocular harness out there, period. So if you want to fumble around and have this nice protective thing because you have these really expensive binoculars that are also armor-proof with rubberized, vulcanized rubber and they're waterproof, you know, just to put them in a bag to collect pine needles and be difficult to pull out if something does get out in front of you in a hurry and you want a glass and have those straps vibrating in the wind and you want to run around with it you know, basically a backpack on your chest, knock yourself out. I choose not to. So I'm a big anti-chest pack guy. <laughs> Just a little. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, I, you know, they were popular in 1996 in the fly fishing industry. And it doesn't take long before you go, this is kind of in my way and this is very hot. And <laughs> for hunting the time of year that we hunt yeah yeah you do and having a full-blown backpack on your back and for all of these guys that say they're backcountry bow hunters well then why are you walking around with another backpack on your chest when you can when you don't have to everything that you want to do and every time they tell me well i do it because my rangefinder's right there yeah guess what you got to reclip that rangefinder there too if you don't reclip it, it's going to hang out in front of you and dangle on the end of the cord and maybe get caught in your bowstring. So, and I've never seen anybody that had their call so close to them and they can just cow call with, you know, a Phelps call and also have a reed in and have a diaphragm in and have a hyper hot and dude, you're rolling. You sound like a herd of elk. And then you just have a nice little clip on the back that holds your tube and you just pull that sucker out and you bugle on it. There's nothing dumber yet more efficient. It's like, J like Jason Harrison. Jason Harrison, the founder of Sitka, said, Derek, that should make you a million dollars alone. That thing is so simple and so basic and so functional, it should make you a million bucks. Everybody that owns a pair of binoculars should have it. Yeah, says a lot. Guy was an yeah. innovator. Uh, so, yeah, I, I am a little biased because I've used everything that they're talking about. I've already done that. So... I'm fascinated with the fascination with these things and the gear reviews that they do. And I'm going, oh, wow, that's pretty innovative. They opened the flap from the other side. Wow, that's pretty cool. You know, I mean, seriously, that, that's that's our innovation right now these days. We've got these phones that will tell you how much that calories are in that candy bar and if you worked it off or not. And we're still lugging around a freaking suitcase on our chest. Yeah. I'm guilty Sorry. of it, man. No, 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 no worries. I'm guilty of it too. <laughs> I'm guilty of it. But well, you got a free one. You got a free one coming, so you get to try it for free. <laughs> heck yeah, yeah. I'm gonna see if uh, I'm gonna see if uh, you can sway me with it. <laughs> like I said, if I tell everybody, if you give it a legitimate shot, you'll never go back. Yeah. No, I will too. And and I, yeah, and I'm not I, I, I still have the one. I still have the first one from 10 years ago. 10 years old. 
a stupid little spaghetti strap bino harness that I still have. And, and, and really I had, it's going back to the basics, right? I mean, if you, yeah. if you look at what was available, you know, nine, 10, you know, years back, that's all it was, right? I mean, a lot of it was that, you know, three quarter inch to inch uh, elastic strapping with, with the leather splitter on the back. And that was a yep. bino harness, right? That was all we knew. Yeah. And, and, and honestly, it's that, that's still legit. If it, if I would have never come up with it, if it, if those straps didn't vibrate in the wind, I wouldn't have come up with it. Right. And they did, they did vibrate a yeah. lot. They did. You know, so I would have never done it. And, uh, but you're right. It's, it's, but it's, it's just getting back to the, the, the basics of things and realizing, you know, this just, it just works. I mean, it just works. And there comes a point where it works. And, and the other part I love about that is you can just wrap that, that bungee right around the center, you know, eyepiece and then go over one of the eye reliefs and you don't have straps hanging everywhere. You want to glass something, you want to keep it in your pickup truck and you want to pull something out and glass it. You don't have straps hanging all over the place. You're trying to pull it out of something. It's right there. You pull it out. There's nothing hanging out. And there you go. Check it out. The back, you know, again, <laughs> it, it goes back to, they're really, they're really functional. I designed another uh, bino harness that has a case, and the case uh, doubles as a backpack. So you can look it up on YouTube. It's it, the, the original company that I started was a company called 20 Sub 3, and it's called the BCS, the Bino Carrying System. And you can watch that dumb little video we did 10 years ago, and the the backpack folds into your case. So you've got a bino harness and on the back, instead of that leather patch, you actually have the case that would be a small little pack. And then when you're done with it, you just shove it all inside of that case and you fold it around and it becomes your binocular case. And we'll be, we'll be introducing, reintroducing that one because there's a fair amount of people that just like that because it's the perfect scouting binocular harness because if you want to pack something or pack your GPS or throw your phone in the back or some water or whatever, and you're just doing a little thing running around here and there, it's perfect. Yeah, I'm still so, looking here. There's a, the 20 did, sub did three is all it? over yes. the place, man. Monster muleys, bow hunting mag. I mean, it is yeah. everywhere. Yeah, that was, that's what I started 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. Soldier Systems Daily. Yep. Check that out. Yeah, I'm going to have to sit down and watch some of this yeah, stuff tonight. Yeah, the military guys, I mean, we, we yeah, the military guys would show up all the time. And, you know, I even have military guys that show up and want specific maps made. And I don't, I don't make the map. They just bring me the map and, okay, I'll make it for you, no problem. And it's, you know, a map of Afghanistan. You know? We do that a lot. I, I mean, my my maps have been to Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan. You know, all over the place. Uh, one of the unique things was we made out of our map material. We made a medical chart for the medic that went and helped out at you know soldiers when they were shot, and he was medevacing everybody. He that's what he put over the victims that were shot. 
because uh, he'd have a chart that he'd have to check off and go through his chart to check everything off. And he used our map material for the chart and it lasted him his whole tour in Iraq. <laughs> so we've done some crazy stuff. I mean, we're a lot of search and rescue people, a lot of search and rescue, you know, a lot of air force stuff, a lot of national guard, you know, I mean, we did the eco challenge. I mean, we've just done all kinds of stuff. We did a, a Jeep Netflix documentary for Jeep. They traveled on these Jeeps from Canada to Mexico, and we made the maps for them for that trip. Yeah, because so, that, yeah, that's one of the things that was on there that we didn't really touch on was all the other offerings, right? You got nautical, national parks, wilderness areas. So there's a whole slew of stuff outside of the ability to customize or the ability the ability to customize the maps. Well, and a lot of people, let's say they have an old map that their grandpa had. And it's, you know, I always joke around that the best maps are the oldest maps. And they've got a spot that they've took to camp. It's all beat to crap. They've marked all over it. They've got a list of everybody that killed everything on there and who killed it, what it was, what time, the date. I mean, I've, it's been amazing. And so I just tell them, go down to your Kinko's or Laser Quick or wherever, get it scanned and send it to me. And I'll print it on this bombproof material that you'll have the rest of your life. So if existing maps, obviously they have to be government, you know, whatever government, you know, but they all are, you know. So any existing maps that they go, you know, I just really love this map. Fine. No problem. I get it. I've got a few maps that I went and had scanned too because they're very specific areas that you can't possibly put on a phone or, or on my map because it's such a small area. And, but it's the, the most detail I've ever seen a map be, but you, they, it's only one made out of that fire district. And it was just some crazy GIS guy that put one together and it was just badass. And so I'm like, okay, well they don't exist anymore. And so, yeah, if somebody wants me to, if they have a map that they love, or they've marked it all up and they have all these spots that they've been scouting, just go get it scanned and send it to me. Uh, you know, it's basically a custom map for you. Here you go. For the cost of a, you know, just a regular map, you know, so we, we're doing that more and more and we're doing, we're doing a lot more blueprints as well. We do blueprints for construction companies, you know, so, you know, whatever people want something to last and it's going to be outside you know, they come to us and, you know, we print it up for them. So, but as far as, yeah, as far as the other things, I mean, we've got, we'll have some unbelievably cool stuff. We're going to, you know, I'm dabbling with aero shafts right now. I've got, I've had a design and, and working on a patent that, that again, kind of solves that one issue of like the backpack, you know, it solves that issue that I have especially now with all of these heavy, you know, heavy broadheads that are on the front. You know, I just look at it. I've got a buddy of mine that owns a company called Valkyrie. And when we started, started, he started making them and I was working with him a little bit on it. I just, I, you know, we couldn't get my bow to do things in the arrows. And I'm, you know, I'm like, look, you're, you don't, you don't, there's not an arrow shaft out there that will deliver what that broadhead requires. And he goes, well, yeah, you know, well, they only do this. And they only do this. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. 
but nobody's launched crap like this and nobody's done this FOC as much. And so now you're getting into a realm of you're pushing the limits. That's a so badass system. <laughs> What's that? I said, that's a badass system that he has. Yeah, but he, it's still not there. So when I finish my arrow shaft, he's, he'll be the one that buys them. Because it's specifically, I mean, it, it's one, something I had in mind before, but it's even exasper, exasperated by that heavy broadhead. And I mean, and, and, and it, I mean, we, me and Brent, we, we argued all the way to Salt Lake, you know, and I just, we went back and forth and I said, look, you got to, you got to understand one thing and get one thing through your head. When you let go of the string, what pushes the broadhead? Well, the arrow shaft. Okay. When the broadhead hits the target, what pushes it through the target? Well, the arrow shaft. So it would behoove you to have something that would support that arrow shaft or that would support your broadhead because you want to get it down to as light as you can. But, and you've got a 200, 250, 300 grain broadhead, and you still have 300 grains of arrow shaft behind you. So the arrow shaft is just as much importance as that broadhead. The same amount of weight is being diverse, but the arrow shaft is what starts and finishes all of it. Yeah, now, uh, yeah, full send on that one. I'm, I'm curious to see it now. Nobody's done it. So I met, I met with the godfather of graphite, Gary Loomis, uh, you know, about four weeks ago, I ran it by him because I want the same philosophy, you know, basically goes towards fishing rods and golf shafts. And he looked at me and he just says, you know what, in theory, you're 100% right in the way that you want to have these made. It is going to harness more energy and it is going to be lighter and it's going to be stronger. That's just the physics and the facts of it. Now, yeah, and now, I mean, who knows? So I, you know, unfortunately the access, the one access I had to a, a graphite facility in Southeast Asia is where they also make Eastern arrows. So. Anyway, so that'll be something that it'll be fun if, you know, we can get that off the ground. That'll be, that'll be fun because again, it's, it's getting, it's getting back to the basics. It's the same thing, you know, understanding why it is, what needs to happen for things to happen and be successful. And once you break it all down into, if I can cast further, I'm going to catch more fish. If I can go and put myself in front of more elk, my chances of harvesting an elk are going to increase. If I can go to more places and I know where I'm going to go before I go, I'm going to be more successful. So it's just breaking down all of the getting down to the bare bones of what does it take to be successful? And, and you know, it's the same thing with clothing. I mean, I can go on and on about clothing, you know, the whole reason I started 20 sub three was because I was in the fly fishing industry and I saw, 
unbelievable materials, unbelievable textiles, graphite materials, you know, different alloys and different things that that would never pass, you know, the standard test of traditional a traditional route of bringing something to market, meaning I'm going to spend $10 for it. I'm going to sell it for $20 and they're going to sell it for $40. So when I was talking with Jason Hairston at, when he was starting Sitka, we talked about it, you know, cause Sitka, it was a hard deal for him to get by that threshold of, you mean I'm going to spend $200 for a pair of camouflage hunting pants? That's three it. times more. That's three times more than the going rate. You're right. I did it. As soon but as he hit, man, ago, I did it. Ten years ago that you might not have. <laughs> no, I, I was in Sitka, I believe it was the second was the second year that they were out. And I was in love with it, man. When I when I learned about the technology that went in <clears throat> excuse me, to the uh to the pattern and, and the thought process and theory behind it. Um sure. and just all the research they done, the, the brains that were behind the development of the gear. Um, it just made sense to me um, outside so of now you know, just now, loving now the pattern. It, yeah. And now, it, and we went round and round about the pattern thing and he went from to the moth wing and he had the moth, he had, then he had multi-cam and then he did, I mean, he's been all over the place when it comes down to the camel pattern, because again, getting down to brass tacks, it doesn't matter. <laughs> No. Why it, do you think? More, why well, do you think more and more guys are wearing solid pants out hunting? Yeah. Solid pants. Well, solid ultimately, pants. all of it is is, and I say it all the time: is we like how it looks, right? Something grabs yeah. your eye. Yep, the absolutely. bow, yeah, the bow grabs your eye. Or if you go, you know, you look at some arrows on the wall, and you got, you know, oh uh, ones hanging all up, and you're, you know, oh, I like how those red ones are with the, with the race stripes and the and the victory flags on them, right? I mean that ultimately for a lot of guys that's what has a huge bearing on whether or not they're getting something or not yep sex sells yeah yeah in a nutshell sure does sure you know so but yeah so yeah so in it you know just to wrap it up you know i when i was talking to him i wanted to sell direct you know that was how i that was my starting point for him he was trying to bring on dealers and I just kept saying, go direct. And so as soon as, you know, the whole Sitka thing went down with Gore, I, I mean, I just went, okay, well, now Jason's going to, he's going to go direct. And sure enough, I, I just, I knew it was coming. What I was surprised was, you know, that there were some things that, you know, different things behind the scenes, I'm surprised went down the way they did. But, you know, but I knew, I knew that Jason would do that, you know, so so it kind of makes sense conceptually why he liked that bino harness so much. Because it was lightweight. It was everything that he was all about. The basics, man. Basics. Right back and to that, right? I mean, everything ties it, back to that. Yeah. You know, you know, and I, th- I think they make great, you know, I mean, it's, I've got nothing bad to say about Cisco or Kuyu. I mean, I think they, you know, you talk about just knocking it out of the park as, as consumers, I hope consumers take more stock in what stuff is made of. And that's what makes the product because you know, that, that product, you know, it's like, 
I used to wear, I used to sell these waders that were called Dan Bailey's. They're the best waders I've ever worn in my life. They were $199 retail. My cost on them as a sales rep was like $70. To this day, 15 years later, I still own waders that do not leak. But he didn't know how to make the waders look sexy and look good. So the performance was second to none. You couldn't even come. I mean, it blew Sims out of the water. You know, but Sims looked good. Sims had a nice color to it, a nice look and feel about it, an articulated knee. And and that's that's one thing that it's no small reason that Kuyu and Sitka are where they are because there's a guy that they hired to be their national sales manager that came from Sims. So they took that philosophy, and there's a reason that all those former Sims reps are now Sitka reps. I mean, they're they're very smart in the way they did it, and they knew what would sell. And so, anyway, a little behind the scenes, a little bit more, but yeah. yeah. That's all interesting stuff, though. <laughs> I know. Tangent, little squirrel action going yeah. on. No, like tangents are good, man. <laughs> so cool, man. Anyway, I, uh, that's great. Yeah, I don't know. I appreciate the time and anything in closing. Um, how can folks get a hold of Rugged Maps or or you if they want to uh, explore the option of uh, getting one? You can, you know, I mean, obviously just ruggedmaps.com. And, you know, we'll be launching probably within the next four to six months, uh, dfergus.com. And that'll be kind of a everything will be under that umbrella. So rugged maps will be a brand under that umbrella. So, but for now you can just reach us at ruggedmaps.com. Um, I get asked the question all the time, you know, guys that first discover us are looking at it going, Oh my God, I've got like 40 maps I have to replace, you know? And, you know, I just, I just tell guys, give me a call. You know, we're happy to help, help people out. You know, we're not trying to break the bank. You know, and uh, so I get a lot of, I had a guy just, just this afternoon call me up and says, man, Derek, I've been wanting to buy your maps, but it's going to cost me about 600 bucks. And I just said, yeah, that's, well, yeah. And that's, and that's the other part. You're never going to own just one. It it doesn't work that way. 60% of our business are all repeat people. And, and, uh, so, you know, I just made him a deal and all of a sudden that guy's talking, you know, great about us and what we're doing. And, you know, I'm not here to take anything away. I got a little family to feed, but you know, I'm not going to jack anybody. So if they want to want a deal, just give me a shout. Don't call me if you have two and you want two maps. Don't do that. <laughs> I will, sl- I will figure out a way to slap you. But anyway, but yeah, just get a hold of us. You know, we're, uh, like I said, it's just me and my family, my son and my wife. And, you know, my wife's in there sewing bags right now. And my son is working on website stuff and some social media stuff. So, you know, it's just uh, if you want to support a little family, we're just trying to make a go of it. Heck yeah. That's what it's about, man. That's what it's about. Yeah. Well, perfect. I uh, can't wait to get mine, man. I'm not going to disclose what unit. So I don't see people <laughs> in there. I'll but... post it on social media. <laughs> oh, gee, thanks. <laughs> Oh, but no, man, I, I appreciate the time. Thank you for the info. Um, and like I said, man, for me, you know, having a map in my pack is uh, absolutely essential. Um, you know, while I'm in the field, 
you know, prior to season with my scouting efforts and everything. So, yeah, it was good, uh, good convo, man. I appreciate it. Hey, thanks a lot, bud. Appreciate it. Thank you. We'll talk to you. You bet. Have a good night, man. You can catch up with Derek and Rugged Maps on Instagram at Rugged Maps. Head over to RuggedMaps.com and check out their Pack Anywhere, Go Anywhere maps. Thank you for listening. Follow and tag us on Instagram at Western Contours. Jump on iTunes, Google Play, and Podbean. Subscribe, leave us a comment, and don't forget to hit that five-star rating. We appreciate the support, and until next time, lay them down.